0: Welcome to the Behind the Curtain Podcast, your real world guide to real estate investment and property management. Welcome to the new Real Estate Investor Podcast, created to expose the reality of real estate investing and property management, and to let you hear the experiences and opinions of investors and industry professionals. If you're just getting started in real estate investing, or if you're a seasoned investor with your own journey's experiences, Behind the Curtain Podcast will enable you to be equipped to invest with common sense. Hi,
1: I'm Glenn Green. Hi, I'm Brett Bernard. And I'm Aaron Ivey. In this episode, we'll be chatting with our guest, Mike Gibson, who's an investor based in California. We'll be discussing various topics in our neighborhood chat. And finally, we'll talk about types of investment property and how to decide what is good for you. So turn up the volume, sit back, and listen. So, Michael, you finally figured out the technology?
2: Yes, I just had to play with it a little bit, and then I got into the back door.
1: (laughs) Cool. Well, we were just talking about um, what an investor should be looking for when they decide to become a real estate investor. And through my, my discussion with Glenn... I was actually talking about building relationships with those investors and and actually getting to know each other on a more personal level than just business. And I was just making the topic that you and I have talked. And when we talk, we typically could talk for a long period of time and never discuss anything about real estate. We just talk about politics or family or this, that, and the other. And Mike, my question to you before we get into anything else is for the people that are going to be listening to this. My issue or my suggestion in Real Estate 101 is first, find you a good agent that knows what they're doing and they trust. So I want you, and you don't have to pump me up simply because you're on the radio and I can hear you. you. If you be honest, if I suck, you can tell people I suck at being an agent. But what I want you to do is explain to people, what should somebody look for in an agent? What did you look for when you contacted me? Okay, so
2: there's multiple facets here out of all the agents I've ever dealt with, I see that they're not thorough. Um, I learned that, I think, on my first property ever bought. It was something to do with the mailbox. And the lady said, oh, yeah, we'll take care of it. Just sign this. You know, we closed. She was gone. I, I She never fixed the mailbox. Mm-hmm. So um, I, I did it myself. But uh, I think just representing the buyer all the way through, and, um, and making sure that, you know, at the end, that the buyers or sellers or both are happy. And I would say, you know, not to really toot on you here, but you are excellent. <laughs> That's what I was hoping I, for, Mike. I, I don't, it, and so, yeah, it you're going to It
1: was a baited question.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I would say that, um, and, I don't, and I don't know why. You know, you guys are different than anybody I've ever dealt with. I, I mean, there's some pretty decent agents, but I'll tell you this, okay? I would be broke now and, and be done if, it, if, if I would have found good agents. I mean, literally, and I can go on and on, but I've told people, hey, I've got X amount. This is what I'm willing to buy up to. Find me something. This is what I'm looking for, Our ROI. And, and people go silent. I found a fiveplex here in California. And I asked a realtor friend of mine to, I want to see it. And he totally dropped the ball. I never got it. And so that was one of those fish that got away right before the market skyrocketed. But, um, you know, your average over there is probably like our economy crashing here is probably Correct. where it's at. And, And so I I had, you know, you know, I had money sitting around and I was waiting for the market to kind of dive. And, you know, it just keeps going and going and going here in California. Um, But, you know, people are leaving the state. And so there's other issues that I have going forward in California. But, you know, meeting you guys was was great. And so I was able to get my money out of the bank, which I don't want to keep money in the bank. I want it invested and making me income. And so...
1: Did I answer your question? Yes, you did. You did. You, I mean, you didn't really pump me up the way I expected you to, but that's okay. I'll accept what you said. No,
2: you, well, and, <laughs> it, it might be that southern thing. I don't know, but you, yeah, you guys are great. I, everything,
1: I appreciate that
2: it went great, and you and you kept up. You you know with the contractors and all that. That's a big deal, man. I really appreciate that. You, yeah. you didn't stop. You got your commission, and that's a big deal.
1: Well, here here's a uh, – and just so. Let me touch on that real quick before we move on. Um, What what Mike is talking about is what Glenn and I, as part of the formula, and that is number one: we're your partner. We're your boots on the ground. When we find a property that's interesting, we go look at it. We take pictures. We check the neighborhood we inspect the property. And then if the if it needs repairs and we're going to negotiate the price based on that, we then get the contractors to get the bids. And then we get them in there to do the work. And then we follow up with them to make sure the work's done. And then we help turn it over to the management company to get it taken care of. Now, normally, an agent would be done at that point. They would be, okay, I've done my job. But that's not true. Mike, you bought three properties a couple months ago, but we've talked... Eight or nine times since then, and you're not buying anything right at this moment. But we still get on the phone and talk. We still get on the phone and discuss strategy, and you know what's coming up this year, what happened last year. Um, and th- I called that's, you yesterday. Yeah, exactly. I just I just told him that, and that was that was Glenn's point earlier: is that we build that personal relationship so that you feel good enough to pick up the phone and call me at nine o'clock one night because you've you've got a brainstorm. That you want to you want to bounce around, you want to talk about of something maybe your next investment, or your next move, and that brings me to the next thing I want to get you to discuss, Mike, if you want to, uh, was our discussion yesterday about your property in California and whether you should do, you know, the ten thirty one and moving things into Memphis. I want you to discuss that and and just off the top of your head, kind of throw it out there if you want to and help people understand what your question was. So,
2: uh, I have the three properties there in Memphis. I have a duplex here in California and, um, you know, I did good on it. I bought it at the right time and it, it pencils. Well, uh, I look at, uh, the most efficiency that I can get for, uh, whatever I have. So what I do is I look at the equity that's in this and um, and what I paid for it. And yes, it pencils very well, but I see the equity in it. And I know that if I pulled the equity out and came to Tennessee, I could do, you know, six, 700, maybe even eight, 900 more a month. And so when I look at that, I think that that's almost, you know, it's like that, that, that property's done good for a while. But now if I was to, and it has to be a 1031, because if I have to pay the tax on it, I'm going to lose a house doing that basically. (laughs) So it has to be a 1031. That's a whole hustle right there is getting, you know, everything, you know, proper. uh, So we don't have to pay the tax on it. But yeah, so that's why I called you yesterday. Because I think I could do quite a bit better by getting out
1: of, that property and moving it to memphis sure or raleigh kind well of. and and i told you i thought even if you weren't let's say you decided you want to go buy in utah you know um, i still think it's a good idea because as we discussed the rate of return you're getting in california versus what you could get here or somewhere else um, it's a no-brainer you're getting a better rate of return better cash flow more income um, and you're going to be in a situation where you're not concerned about the the property losing value at this point, it should appreciate, versus what's happening in California, there's a big chance that that, that, uh, that unit may be worth, you know, 15% less two years from now, simply because of what's happening in California and the state's economy.
2: In California, especially in the Central Valley, this market has gone, 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 gone. And the weird thing we talked about this yesterday i think is uh, you know a duplex can be a four hundred thousand dollar duplex that still has 800 a month rents the people that that owned it didn't keep up on the rents so but they're gonna you know it's worth 400 you know or at least they put it out there to see if they're gonna get it sold it's like a four percent return i looked at something this morning that i you know i i look at stuff in here and uh it's like a four point three percent gross return. Someone's going to end up getting like two and a half net. <laughs> I mean, right, that's, right. I better bank. I understand that's really safe money, uh, but I'm not willing to do that when I see there's more options. So, in my opinion, California as a whole is going to pop. People are leaving the state very quickly. You know, I'm kind of stuck here for a while, but um, there is a couple other dynamics going on and I don't know how it's going to affect the, especially the valley. We have people from the Bay Area because of the virus. They don't have to go into work anymore and they can telecommute. So I'm seeing, the, seeing these people come out to the rural areas and they're bringing their money out here and they're buying, I'm, I'm guessing a large part of them are paying cash for these because they're Bay Area money and they sold their home and they bought a home out here for half the price. Cause the Bay Area, you can't touch anything for under a million unless it's a, I mean, you'd be in skid row. So million dollar home, let's say a two and a half million dollar home. They sell it, they buy a nice six, $700,000 home out here. And they've got, you know, almost a million or, or a little bit over a million left and they're buying a few rentals. And so that's driving our prices up. I think we're close to a massive correction. I think I think the whole country is going to have a big correction, but we're not isolated here. I think you guys are more isolated because when I see people leaving the state, they're going, well, it was Oregon back 7, 10, 12 years ago. But they have... Uh, you know, they have their own issues that are coming up. So, you know, Portland's a big issue. So people are not going to Oregon as much. I hear Idaho, most of the time, if people are country folk or they're, they they want to go in the mountains, but Idaho has got new issues that are going to come up. So I see a few people going to Utah. Utah, beautiful, very conservative state. But I'm hearing Texas a lot. And I'm I'm hearing um, I'm hearing more and more people going to Tennessee, and and Oklahoma a little bit. One of my neighbors moved to Oklahoma, but I, I can't handle Oklahoma. But yeah,
1: so I would say <laughs> neither can I. I
2: think Tennessee. I think Tennessee. You can't handle the is, state
1: or the musical <laughs> or both. Yeah, I don't know, but uh-huh. I, yeah, I
2: think Tennessee is going to be isolated because I'm hearing more and more people, especially Nashville. So, so um, I think it's a very safe bet.
1: Yeah, I I agree with you, uh, and not just because I'm an agent here, but um, as you learn about the the market, especially here in Memphis, um, we discussed earlier the demographics and the fact that the majority of people inside of city limits are considered blue collar workers. They're working at the airport, FedEx, Nike, Amazon, um, and they're not making a hundred grand a year, so they're a lot of them are going to be renting homes, and the, the rent factor has got to be between eight and 1200 a month. You exceed 1200 and you're going to eliminate a good portion of the rental market in Memphis. Um, but th- I'm glad you discussed what you discussed because I do have investors that have properties in other parts of the country, and they've recently been calling me asking me if I thought it was prudent for them to liquidate these properties before – the bust or the, the correction and bring that money to Memphis and buy four or five rental properties and increase their income uh, and potential of, of uh, value uh, increasing. And I say absolutely, not because I want to sell properties, but because it's common sense. You just said you looked at one and the, and the gross is four and a half percent and that'll end up being maybe two and a half if they're lucky. I mean, you made the point. You can put your money in the bank and get better than that. So, what's the point? But with that said, I want to I want to get your opinion on a few things. You and I, Michael, you and I have talked about a lot. We've talked about the economy, the new administration, twenty 2020 twenty versus twenty twenty one. What experts are saying and uh, what I feel. Uh, with what we see here on the ground in Memphis. So I just want to run through a few questions and kind of get your feedback on it. The first thing I want to have you touch on is how do you feel about your investments in 2020? I know the only place you bought was Memphis, but you've purchased in other areas. And how how do you feel about those purchases right now today as investments?
2: You no, know, I'm ecstatic. I was trying to figure out how I can you know get more. And I've got... I've got two ideas you know that we're gonna we're gonna do two more waves um, I think probably this year but yeah having money in the bank and um, you know just if it wasn't for meeting Tom out here and finding out about you guys and you know he gave you guys top honors I would have never I would have just been sitting on cash and so no i I would say I'm really. I'm really uh, happy that uh, I've got you know more income versus just you know cash heavy sitting in the bank.
1: And what what did uh, you, now that the the cash flow is coming in? And you had to do some repairs to the properties, and uh, we ne- we negotiated that into the deal themselves. Um, mm-hmm. But what right now? What is your projected ROI rate of return annually? Um. Gee. Do you know?
2: I mean, Well, so no, it's been a little early. I just asked Brenda, my wife, I said, hey, did we get uh, deposits? And she said, yep, I see them. And then I asked her three or four days ago and she said, no, it's too early. We need to wait another week. So I I don't even know. It's probably in there by now. Okay. And what is Uh, your projected cash flow? I think we ran numbers and it was going to be 10.7. That was going to be, that was going to be, Net before taxes, and obviously things can come up. Yeah, and I might was that before the
1: expenses. Out. I don't recall off the top of my head before the repairs.
2: Uh, well, so that was if we were to pay full price, but then we saw that there was repairs. I ended up doing basically all the repairs, so I spent eight thousand more on the combined three homes. So that changes a little bit. Maybe I'm I'm just throwing off the top of my head. I might be at like a 10.2 or 10.3. But talking to Lindsay in your in your management office, um, some of the numbers are a little low, and so I think there was well, so two of the homes, they're great families. They've been there. One of them's been there over eight years. I, mm-hmm. I really don't want to mess with them. The the other one I think's only been in there a year, and, and then, then
1: the third one. Real quick before you move forward, the the one that Mike's talking about, the family has been there eight years. His point is is that the the, the house is rented way under market. It was two or three hundred dollars difference, is not it? Something like that. So I thought you told me it should have been eight twenty five. Maybe it's seven twenty five. Um, but maybe
2: maybe I'm off. Maybe I think the bottom up. is
1: eight twenty five. The top was. Nine fifty. So I think the range for me would have been maybe $850, 875 is what it should be. So yeah, yeah you're about one hundred and twenty five dollars really shorter.
0: Well, it's and it's very common in the Memphis market for um, uh, investor property owners to not want to increase the rent for long term tenants, which is fine, except if you decide that you want to sell it as a tenant occupied property. Uh, if you're going to sell it vacant one day and fix it up and put it on the market, that's fine. But I do have uh, property owners that come to me and they want to sell it with the tenant in it, but they haven't raised the rent in five years. And believe me, the, the rent market has changed quite a bit in five years. So that's something to give consideration to. You know, you're bringing up a good point, Glenn. Um, and that's and, and
2: that's what's happened here in California. And so to put a flip on it, and I know you guys don't have this, hopefully you never do, but our governor came out and said, there's rent control. So you can only go up a combined 5% <clears throat> per year. And then um, on top of that, you can go up inflation. So inflationary numbers change every year. Let's just say it's 3%. So that means you can only go up by... Eight percent. So, if you're in California and and you buy a property for full price, but it's still at 850, you know market when it should be 1150, you can go up eight percent a year. Roughly, it might be a little less next year. How many years is that going to take you to get to fair market or even close to fair market? You're going to be bailing water out for years, and that's another big issue with California. Um, and I would never hit anybody <clears throat> hard like that anyways. But, um, yeah, you're you're doomed if you buy in California because okay. of that.
1: So
0: that, that's incredible to me because they're telling you uh, 8% based upon what the current rent is, not the market rent. Is that right?
2: Yes, they put a cap on up inflation for that year, whatever they deem it to be, plus a 5%. Kicker on top of that. So you know it could be seven to eight percent. Unless we have big inflation, then maybe it could be nine or ten, but even at eight percent, and you got eight hundred, let's say we'll just round it to eight hundred, that's sixty-four dollars. Now you're at eight sixty a month, and then next year you go to nine twenty, uh, and then 980. I mean, it it could literally take you five to six years to catch it, but if it's gone already for the next five years, it might take you another two or three to catch it.
1: Yeah, it makes sense. Well, luckily we don't have those rent controls here. I mean, unless you get into MHA, um, you know, the Section 8 housing, there's some rules and issues with that, but None of the three that you purchase are MHA. I try to stay away from those as much as possible because they are com- complicated. Um, but what I just I wanted to bring home the point before we go to the next question that what you've done in Memphis has produced more than the four hundred thousand uh, dollar investment you have in California and i think we spent what we bought these for all between what 70 and 75 a piece i think it was
2: yeah i paid 183 and i think i put 21
1: in right and then you've got you've got rental income of around 24 2500 a month correct 70 22 75 maybe okay so uh, people that are listening can take those numbers and just divide them out and get a gross and then deduct, you know, two or three percent off of that for cost. And, and it'll give you an idea of the rate of returns that you can you can work towards in Memphis. Um, or just say one percent a month. Yes. Yeah. Those are across the board. That's what investors like. So okay. if it's a two
2: hundred thousand dollar property, uh, you, you want um, twenty four thousand a year.
1: Correct. Yeah, and I mean, I, and that that is a very good point for for the new new uh, new investors that are listening. Um, I want to I want to make sure they understand one thing. A, a good rule to under, to to always keep with you when you're looking for property is use the one percent rule. If you buy it, just like Mike said, for two hundred thousand dollars, it needs to be able to rent for at least two thousand a month. If it's less than that. Then you're dramatically going to change your ROI. We have some investors that are good with that, but most of my investors, their baseline is one percent, and they only do one percent or higher. So, when you're out talking to an agent, throw that question at them. Say, "Do you do you hunt properties based on a one percent rule?" And if they say, "I don't know what that is," hang the phone up and call somebody else. (laughs) All right, so let's move on.
0: Okay, Mike. Based upon your 2020 experience, what do you see happening in the market in 2021? Everybody, I know everybody's got an opinion, got all these experts out there. What do you, you see happening in 2021 in the real estate market?
2: Well, it's only my opinion, and my opinion changes daily. <laughs> <laughs>
1: I, I What's think your opinion today?
2: <laughs> I think the stock market is going to crash hard. I think our current administration is going to keep putting screws to us and they're going to send us into some kind of recession. <clears throat> I think we already kind of are because of this virus, but I think it's going to get much worse. People with money are not going to usually be hurt because of that. And that's sad that the middle class and, and, the, and the lower end people are going to be in trouble, and I feel bad for them. Uh, so I think going forward, stock market is going to crash. People are going to take what they have left out of the market. And I'm thinking about this because I've moved my money into money market uh, that's still in my my SEP IRA because I'm self-employed. But I'm thinking about paying the tax on it just and buying something that's safe. And real estate is one of the safest things uh that you can buy and so i saw this last time when the market crashed i couldn't even really buy any properties it was hard i bought that duplex which i got really lucky on and i got two more homes that i've sold but uh people run and and there's some big hedge funds there's some big players that have multi-millions of dollars that will come into the valley they'll 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 go after a few realtors and they'll say If you want this contract, you have to bring me this much of real estate per month or whatever. And so they'll work for them. And the smaller people like myself will have a very hard time getting anything. And so that's probably what's going to happen. It's going to be a big fest for the the wealthy to go in and buy up multiple properties. And there's going to be some people that are entry level investors that are going to probably get wiped out and they're going to have to sell to generate some cash because maybe they were overexpended in, in another uh, uh, aspect of their life. But yeah, it's going to be a fading frenzy. I don't know if you saw that back in 09, 010, 011, 12, but out here, it was, it was absolutely crazy. I walked in this duplex and there was probably 15 to 20 business cards on the kitchen and they wanted 119 for it. And I told the realtor, 131. And luckily, I said 131. We offered 131, or I would not have got it because someone came in at like 130. And so then I put 24 grand into it because it was beat. You wouldn't even want to live in this. You, were, I didn't want to walk in it. But so 24 thousand dollars later, and uh, it, it worked out. I couldn't even rent the place for the first probably year. I was given. First month free, and then I had a guy run on me after two months. And so, but but by oh fifteen, oh sixteen, things started to work out. And it's it's turned out to be one of the best investments I ever did. But now I see that the price is so high. You know, we were talking about that earlier, where I think maybe I just get out of it and and get the money out of California. And I don't even know if I answered your original question.
1: Yeah, you did. Yeah, I I wanted I wanted our listeners, people listening, I wanted them to understand your thought process uh, that you had property in California. Now that you've purchased in Memphis and you're looking at the difference in the two, you're now looking at California property as it's not so it's not a great deal anymore. But before you met me and bought these properties in Memphis, you thought it was a fantastic deal. So. I want people to understand that. Listen, if you have real estate in other areas, and you want to increase your portfolio, increase your income, increase your equity position, give us a call. Think about liquidating it and reinvesting it somewhere else through a ten thirty one. Um, you know, and if you can't increase your profitability and income on it, then don't do it. But you know, I can tell you that if you come to Memphis. From California, I can assure you, we're probably going to be able to at least get you another two or three or four percent in return on your investment. So,
0: and and Memphis doesn't have the volatility that other markets have. Um, even when the market turns, Memphis doesn't have those wild ups and downs that you find in New York and and California. It's much more stable. Now, on the flip side. Yeah, it's safe. On the flip side, you're not going to see 10% appreciation, but that's not what most investors are looking for. They're looking for income and they're looking for uh, slow and steady appreciation three, four. There are parts of town that are doing closer to 10, but that's not a long term thing. There's going to be a cap on that. That's the eastern suburbs where everybody. Uh, enjoys living, um, so I think the Memphis that the the Memphis market is a safer market in the long term for investors.
1: Yeah, I agree with that. Um, so, Mike, uh, my next question for you is: is how do you you touched on it a minute ago, and uh, and I'm not, I'm not asking you to get off on a political rant or anything, um, but how do you think? Because when you touched on it, it, it really made me start thinking, how do you think the new administration and what they're doing now with you know, the, the canceling the pipeline, the loss of jobs? I heard, read yesterday that Shell Oil is planning 9,000 layoffs. Um, how do you feel this administration is going to affect the housing market as a whole and then the rental market? Or do you think they'll have an effect on it, positive or negative? So I think we can all agree
2: that uh, the left side of politics is more about control, less freedoms, more taxes. And <clears throat> the the right side of politics is more about freedoms uh, and less taxes. And so by them tweaking just a little bit, it, it can hurt a lot of people. Um, not to go into politics, but I would say that it's going to get it's going to get uh, more expensive. And so, I've watched a lot of videos with a lot of economists. Some say we're going to have inflation. Some say we're going to have deflation because of the the purchasing power of the dollar. Um, with layoffs, I'm really I'm saddened that a lot of people, good people, losing their jobs. And I would never want to make money off someone's heartache. But if, you know, if they lose uh, their job and these green jobs aren't ready for them, these people are going to have to give back their cars that they just bought and their houses and um, their toys. We're going to see a lot of that stuff come back on the market. And so it it might change the values of, of properties, especially where, you know, these pipelines are at. I don't really look at it that way. I mean, yeah, it'd be nice if I could, you know, catch the next wave, you know, when it goes down and I could buy properties at 10 or 15,000 less, but I'm not worried about it. In my game now, I'm looking for income because, you know, there's going to come a time where I'm going to want to tap into that and uh, start enjoying life and I'm self-employed. I don't have retirement. This is um, a game, I guess. It's um, I enjoy investing and um, not only is it maybe a hobby, but eventually it's going to allow my wife and I to not have to work because she don't really have much of a retirement.
1: And l- let me make the, so the listeners understand who you are. Um, I'm not going to tell any personal secrets, but Mike is not a millionaire. He's not some tycoon living in California in a 20,000 square foot mansion you know, dabbling in real estate investment and playing the market. Mike is a self-employed individual, just like I am, just like Glenn is. And, but Mike is smart about how he invests. So we were, Mike, we were talking early in an earlier segment that you don't have to be some wealthy millionaire with cash in the bank to be a real estate investor. You just got to fi- pick a good agent and be smart.
2: I will tell you this. Um, I haven't made over $100,000 um in over mm, uh, 15 years back in the last boom i did well i i there was three years where i made good money but then i worked literally for free holding my 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 business together and it got to the point where i worked by myself i went from you know having multiple people probably well with subs i probably had about 28 people Uh, probably about four of them were actual employees and it was good. And then I went and I literally made, I think I had enough money at the end of the month to pay my gas card, okay? And so that happened, that lasted for years. And just up until I would say I was making 30 or 40,000 a year for the last few years. But but, so I would tell anybody that's listening to this, I lived on ham and cheese and scraped chains together when I was in my 20s just to get enough gas, to go do what I was doing, signs and so forth. I'm not, I, I'm not, I didn't have a golden spoon. I've never gotten any inheritance. Um, I never made large money. But the one thing I have done consistently is work, save and invest. And so anybody that's listening to this that doesn't have much, that, that don't matter. I, I was I was just trying to get by in my life, but I always saved a little bit. I bought a house and I ended up selling it because I had some land and I ended up selling that. I bought that on a credit card, by the way. I put 10,000 down.
0: <laughs>
1: I've never heard that yes. before.
2: <laughs> well, they wanted, it was 99,000. I wanted, I wanted a ranchette and I couldn't afford one. And I found this land. And so living in Merced... Um, I bought it. I, I bought it for uh, ninety nine thousand. I put six thousand on my credit card to get it, and then at the end of one year, I had to pay it off. So I had to give her a four thousand dollar kicker. So that was ten percent, or maybe it was 9900 or whatever. And so I got lucky with that. That appreciated. I sold that for two seventy within like three years. And so, yeah. Then I bought a house. And then I waited two years and then I, or a year, and I got an equity line. And then I bought some more land uh, out by an airport. And I was one of the first people to buy into it. They didn't even have it curbed or guttered or paved or anything. And then that went up. And then I parlayed that in some other uh, properties and some warehouses. Um, and so, you know, you can buy something and let it appreciate. Uh, but when you have a, a booming economy that's starting, if you can find, you know, and I I did this with with warehouses too, where I'd put a deposit down right when the real estate sign went up. And by the time they were putting the mortar and bricks on it, I'd tell the realtor, hey, I want out of it. And I I mean, that was a golden thing because you see, once you're almost ready for occupancy, people are like, hey, I could put my shop in there. And so it's a little secret, but people like, hey, I should look into buying this. And then I turn around and and sell my option, I double escrowed uh, one, two, three, four, five, six properties that way where I never even physically had to own them.
0: Explain what double escrow is for those that don't know. Simply put, in, in
2: layman's terms coming from me, is where you buy something. And before you take possession and pay for it, close escrow, you sign it off to a uh, another buyer. And so I've done that a few times where these are new new builds where I put a deposit down. They took quite a while. And by the time they were ready to, to purchase, I already had someone else that wanted it. I told my realtor that I didn't need it. I didn't want it. I wanted to go ahead and sell it. And so he uh, went ahead and, sold my units or on another case where it was parcels where he just turned around and sold it. And so I went into the escrow the day of close and signed off and new owners signed on. And then I was given uh, the difference in a check.
0: So you actually closed on that contract? You actually went through the closing or did you assign your contract to somebody else?
2: I assigned my contract to someone else. I okay. never took ownership of it. Wow. Well, okay.
1: there's there's two ways that you can do that. Wholesalers, a lot of wholesalers do that. They put an option on a property and then they sell that option for whatever the seller wants plus a $5,000 fee. And they get, that, they get paid at that when it closes. Um, and there's another way to do it too, which I used to do a lot of this back home in Louisiana when I got started in real estate, is you put a contract on a piece of property and then you line up a buyer. So in other words, the house is, they want a hundred grand for it. It's worth 140. I put a contract for a hundred thousand. I turn around and sell it for 140. And then I do a dual closing. And as long as it's a cash transaction or you're not using federally insured loan money, you can still do that. So at the closing table, I made a gross $40,000 profit. Now out of that, obviously I've got my fees and costs to deal with, and I may only net 15 to 20, but I still bought and sold a piece of property without actually writing a check. That's also that short
0: term capital gain, right?
1: Yeah, well, I found out later that it was. <laughs> <laughs> the IRS was quick to notify me hey, by the way, this is all capital gains. So, yeah, yeah that,
2: that's that's ordinary income if it's under a year, right?
1: Yes, but um. This was back in, I want to say, late 90s. So back then, it was it was capital gains, and the, the capital gains tax was ex- pretty hefty. So um, I ended up having to negotiate with the IRS and, and settle that out. So never made that mistake again. But my point about the story was that in double escrow, there are two ways for that to happen. I don't know if if you don't take esc- if you don't take title to it, and then get and then transfer title, it's not truly double escrow.
0: Correct. No, if if like a, a wholesaler that's right. assigning the contract, that probably is treated as ordinary income. Okay. But I think if you do a back to back closing mm-hmm. and maybe short term capital gain,
1: I don't know. Okay, well, Mike, um, hey, I appreciate you coming on, man. I really do and uh, yeah. I'm glad to glad to get your insight. Um, I'm glad we we're able for our listeners to hear from an average guy who's been a good investor with your with his money and has done pretty well so far. Um, and also your take on where we're headed and what you know where you think the this market's going. I still believe at the end of the day, that the market's going to stay strong in Memphis is still going to be a good investment market. I'm not sure, but I know I don't think that about California, New York, and some other areas of the country. But I think Memphis and some of these areas that are blue collar are going to continue to see um, investment from in, from foreign investment as well as out of state investment, and I think the real market will continue to grow. Well, Mike, I appreciate your time, man. Thanks for calling in, and I'll uh, we'll I'll, we'll talk later and uh, discuss. But we were, we'll finish our conversation what we talked about yesterday.
2: Yeah, most definitely. Cool. Thank you, gentlemen.
3: Bye, right, right, buddy.
1: You Thanks, too, man. Mike. All right. See ya.
0: And now, Neighborhood Chat.
1: So,
3: Brett, I'm sure you've heard about what we're dealing with in property management right now.
1: All day, every day. That's right, yeah. Um, What's the name of the program? I'm
3: not going to say that. Um, I, unfortunately, I don't want to vilify anything I don't want to get.
1: I understand. Well, you, you know, whenever I, when I send emails to the office about question. I always get the same thing back from somebody. Oh, that means I gotta go into the program and oh my God, I gotta do this and Is so complicated, so I feel bad now when I ask for somebody to look something up for me.
3: Yeah, um, you know, so what we've done um, is we, uh, we, I believe we got caught by a very slick bit of advertising mm-hmm. um, by uh, a software company, and um, the deal is um, it's a slick bit of software, uh, and uh, it, a lot of people use it. It's a, it's, yeah. it's actually, it's almost ubiquitous across the property management industry. Um, everybody knows this, the name of this company, so it, It'd be similar to a you know, popular uh, software phone or something like that in right. television so um so their sales uh, capacity on the front end of uh the the management software to us uh was excellent you know they sold us to believe that the software could do so everything call salesman. right well we've learned that now um <clears throat> but what we found out is that the core uh, the backbone of this software when it comes to property management, uh which is by the way accounting yeah. um, their accounting system is not uh flexible right. so let me tell you some of the challenges that we've had because you know i don't i don't want anybody to lose faith in us over over this this little it's a bump in the road it's a six month bump in the mm-hmm. road, okay
1: um, well, I mean you change once you if you change every and you know as well as I do, you went through a massive change that. Change the interior of how your office worked and how the employees produced and how they kept records. And you, when you go and change things for people like that or make people change like that, it's difficult. Nobody likes change. Mm-hmm. Then you have, you know, of course, not everything's going to work the way it's supposed to. So you're going to have the little clicks here and clicks there. Yeah. Um. That that's understandable. Yeah. But it, yeah. it'll it'll smooth out.
3: Yeah. So, you know, there are aspects to the software that are actually very enjoyable, and and so. Um, I do want to give it praise, you know. In case it ever came out, which software we're talking about, um, the interface for the customer in general, you know, is 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 very good. Um, there are some some technical aspects of it, such as a universal search bar is brilliant, you know, and and so they the, it's kind of like the Google searchability inside of the software. Um, so that's super duper cool. <laughs> uh, but but what it really comes down to is as the the problems for our investors. Is that the statements are difficult to read, and at Enterprise we really make it a priority um, for for us to do the work, for us to properly right. be able to account for expenses and the like. So the so the the statements can be read, but they require an interpretation, an interpreter um, for one of our property managers and able to do in order to do that for our investors that own one house, not a problem. For our investors that own three houses, five houses, not a problem. But we have several investors that own, you know, anywhere from Lots. 20 to 40. Yeah. And uh those investors um require a monthly meeting with us to to get through these statements. So, um in, in to show our commitment to our our clients, uh to to prove to them that we are uh, wanting to make their experience as easy as possible mm-hmm. that's why we're here that's why we're paid um, we are currently vetting a second software um, that uh, is used by fewer property management companies here and the reason it's not as popular is because it's a little boring to right. the user um, it has all the tools all the the functionality that the current software we're, we're working with have um, but it, is, uh, it's, it, it looks more like QuickBooks. I mean, let me just get very industry about it. Our current software looks nothing like QuickBooks. Um, most people who own companies have a use, use QuickBooks or, or yeah. something similar to that. Um, the management software we came from in QuickBooks. So the, the one we're going to be going to, um, I would say, in March or April, um, it, it, the, the interface is going to be just fine. Um, it'll be dependable, and the investors are going to get what they need and want. So that's really exciting. Excellent. Um, So, yeah, um, although it's challenging, we're remaining positive. Um, One cool thing that's happening in property management right now is that uh, we're continuing to innovate um, in our inspections um, uh, department. Mm -hmm. Um, Our inspections department has been... um, Uh, There are challenges there as well. You know, tenants just don't want you coming back into their house to inspect their house. You know, they're like, gosh, dad, you know, I graduated from college. I don't want anybody back in my dorm room again, you know, telling me to clean it up, you know. Um, So one of the things that enterprise property management sells to our investors is the sense of presence in the property. You know, we want our investors to not have to worry about whether or not their property is being abused um, or, or not monitored for proper maintenance and stuff like that. And so we do have a great inspections program. The iteration of the inspection program we have right now, which is so fun is um, we have hired handymen Mm -hmm. to perform the inspections, which is brilliant because uh, performing maintenance, you know, on a on a case by case basis is expensive. Sure. Right? Um, but, but what we figured out is, hey, if we have a handyman go in there and do the inspection, he's gonna be able to tighten the screws, you know, fix very, very small things. Instead so um, of
1: adding it to a list while I'm there, I'm just gonna sc- screw the wall plate back in.
3: That's exactly right. Yeah. Or change or, the light bulb out. Well and we don't do light bulbs. That's a anyway. You don't do light bulbs.
1: Well, we, yeah. You know, you just turn it five times to the right and you're done. Is this where the, how many people take the screw in a light bulb joke came from?
3: Well, (laughs) so this last week I got a bill Uh, from, from a, yeah, from, from an electrician for changing a light bulb. How much
1: was it? $90. (laughs) I'll do you one better. I'm on the road all day. You yeah. call me, I'll change one for 50 $50. Did I'll you save you $40. Really great. Yeah. 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 I'll even buy the light bulb. I'm
3: right. Well, <laughs> yeah, that's great. So anyway, um, so I, I called up the electrician. I'm like, you changed the light bulb for $90. And he said, well, I got sent out because the tenant said the light fixture didn't work. And I said, well, no, hold on. The light fixture did work, right? And he said, yeah. I said, why in the world would an electrician go out and check on a light fixture, right? And then change the bulb and then charge me $90. Anyway, uh, that's now a joke, so we don't change light bulbs. You can cut that out. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think we cut anything out. Yeah, everything stays in. So, uh so, yeah, the $90 light bulb. So, anyway, that's kind of a joke. So, inspectors go in now, and they're able to do a few certain things while they're at the house. And if they see anything else that needs to be repaired, they're going to send an estimate to our homeowners. which yeah, it's perfect. It's brilliant.
1: I mean, uh, now, um, are you also doing the safety inspections, too, though?
3: After, yeah. After, right? Yeah. So, uh, yeah. So, the safety inspection is more of an annual thing. And uh, we use Randy um, right. here. And Randy's of course, brilliant. He's a former firefighter. Um, so, safety is his number one priority. And um, so, yeah, recently Randy outfitted an apartment complex that came on with us with fire extinguishers and an escape plan. And he drew it all out himself, laminated it. It's on the inside, right by the door of everybody's. I,
1: I just saw it the other day. That's right. You know, was you know there that there no show n- well. Unit number two. Yeah. So, yeah. Cool.
0: Of the investors that I've been working with, I've got. Three or four different types. I've got your cash, okay, conventional financing, portfolio financing, and hard money loans. So let's talk about each one. Who would want to just use cash? This is the primary vehicle for my Japanese investors because they're trying to protect their cash. Because in their economy, they make no interest by leaving their money in the bank. As a matter of fact, in some instances, they actually have to pay to park their money in the bank. So they want a place to put it. In the past, there have been some tax advantages for them by buying real estate and then writing down a portion of that investment, which reduced their uh, annual income from a tax standpoint. So many Japanese would come in here and buy higher-priced homes at lower ROI because the real impact for them was the tax advantage. Okay, American investors typically don't do all cash, and here's why. Let's say you've got $100,000 to spend. You can go buy a $100,000 home. Let's say it's renting for $1,000, so your ROI after expenses and everything is probably going to be around 8%, 9%, which is not bad. But instead of buying one house with $100,000, the typical investor is going to take a quarter of that, and they're going to buy a $100,000 house and put $25,000 down on it. And then they're going to go get another house and put $25,000 down on it. And another house and another house now they have four houses for a hundred thousand dollars a piece. they've got four hundred thousand dollars in real estate that they're getting a return on investment on with a low interest loan now is the best time to do that because right now we have historically low interest rates you wouldn't want to do that at eight or nine percent but if you can get a loan at four percent why not borrow the money it's cheap to borrow so that's the, the, the more preferred method now. Conventional loan, 25% down, finance the rest. And the, the smart ones will take the rent revenue, the ROI portion, after expenses, and they'll put that on the principal of the loan to help to pay down the principal faster than they planned on. And then once they get it paid down, they can turn around and buy another home. So over the course of time, over several years, they're paying off these mortgages early so that they can go buy more properties so that in a 10-year span, they've bought 15 homes. That way, when they get down the road, they've got rent income with mortgages that are already paid off, and now they can live on the rent income. Now, some of them take it a step further. They'll get the mortgages paid off, and now they've got properties that they have equity in and they'll go to a portfolio lender who will extend to them a line of credit using those properties that are already paid off as collateral. So now they've got another line of credit that they can borrow from to go buy more properties and start the whole process over. So it, it just depends on, on how they want to go about it. You know Now, hard money lending is something that flippers do. They're borrowing money for a short period of time, anywhere from 30 days to, say, six months. And it's hard, it, they call it hard money because there's no collateral. They're borrowing money at a higher interest rate from somebody that's going to trust them to pay it back. Now, there's, there's going to be some guarantees in there, of course, but if you're going to borrow – two hundred thousand dollars to do a flip and it's going to take you 90 days you may pay eight or nine percent annual on that so if you break that down that's about you know three quarters of a point per month and so over three months you you're going to have hard money cost you have to build that into your budget what's it going to cost me to have this money for three months so it's a part of your budget expense So hard money lending is not something I would recommend for long term, but for short term, very short term, it seems to be more and more uh, plausible for flippers.
3: Yeah. So um, when it comes to hard money lending, obviously the goal with this is that there is a, a, a real estate project, um, a flip that they're looking to do, like you're talking about. Um, I've even had friends that have done new construction with a hard money loan uh, or a, a full rehab, like on the flips that you're talking about. Um, and, and in that situation, it makes perfect sense to to do that. Um, we actually have friends that are hard money lenders. Um you know, this is such a unique time uh, for a lot of our uh, investors because there are people out there that are literally forming their own banks, you know, because they've made so much wealth. They've seen that a way for them to make some good money is to take that risk to lend 100000 hundred thousand, two hundred thousand, three hundred thousand $200,000, 300000 you know, at that 8 or 9% interest rate that you're talking about with various fees, and that's how those people are making their money back. So um, I really enjoyed what you said about the various stages of real estate investment. Um, You know, what you just mentioned was is really the dream, you know, for for most real estate investors. And that's to start with one or three and then and pay those down and and be faithful and responsible with those properties and the financing that they've taken out. And then once they've created that equity inside of that property, um, they're able to then borrow against themselves. You know, they themselves are becoming the bank. They yeah. themselves are, are building wealth in a way that, um, that really only real estate can do. You can't do that with your Roth IRA. Well, actually, I take that back. You can get financing through your Roth IRA. Yes, you can. Uh, IRA. You yeah. Can. yeah. Um, but it's it's not common, and it's very complicated.
0: Um, yes, because basically the the IRA is the buyer, right. and the IRA is on the deed. Yeah. Because you've borrowed money against that asset – so the asset you're you're purchasing becomes the property of the IRA self-directed IRA that's where I was going there
3: yeah and I you know I hadn't planned on bringing that up but we do have right now several uh, self-directed IRAs um, that own property and we manage for that self-directed IRA yeah. um, I it's it is um, it's an interesting way to purchase real estate I'll put it that way if that works for you that's great I don't know if this is true or not. In my experience, the most of the people that are using a self-directed IRA are older than, I would say, age 55. Um, a lot of them are in their retirement age. So they've built up a lot of value in their IRA. And then when they switch it over to a self-directed and they're able to not only purchase property but also pay for expenses um, you know, throughout the the ownership of that property – um, it's very, very interesting. One of the downsides from a property management perspective is that uh, there is somebody managing that IRA. And so I'm not speaking to Mr. You know, the homeowner. Right. I have to speak to his the uh, advisor, if you will, that works for Pensco or wh- whoever owns the the IRA or whoever's managing it. So that's that's a very different uh, type of thing. Um But the line of credit thing is a big deal. Um, A lot of our young investors, and when I say young investor, I really am talking about people between the ages of... 28, 29 At the absolute youngest, all the way up to their late forties, early fifties. That's generally the. You're age. making me feel good, right? Good, that's it. great, <laughs> myself included. <laughs> um, but like that's that's the the age range that you and I get to work with, where people have made money, they have invested it wisely, they're looking to diversify, and once they get into real estate, they get hooked. And um, and so we've seen a lot of these investors that we've worked with for four, five, six years begin to get into that line of credit. And um, th- that is really a
0: different level of financing at that point, wouldn't you say? Yes, it's a, it's a bit more complicated. And quite frankly, there's fewer lenders for that type of activity. When you go when, – when you talk to local lenders, um, many of them are happy to do investor loans – but once you start talking about portfolios and lines of credit it goes to a completely different department and they really they're going to take more time to look at the individual to ensure that they can be they can rest assured that it's going to work okay so there's a lot of questions of me as I'll meet with the lender sometimes And they're asking me specific questions about where the properties are located, the condition of the properties, et cetera. No, they they want quality properties. They
3: really do. And let's just speak to that really quickly. Um, You and I have both worked with bankers. And what I find with line of credit – Extensions, you know, uh, is that um, the bank themselves want to be be able to identify with the property, and let me explain to the the listener why that is. Um, this is not an FHA loan. This is not a you know super huge national bank loan where they have no idea where the property is and really aren't interested. Um, this is a local bank that we work with. It's somebody that Glenn or Brett and I have a relationship with, and they. You know, if 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 you as the investor, for some reason, happen to go under, um, they want to know that they can uh, take the property back and uh, liquidate and liquidate it. Yeah. Yeah. And so um, line, and not lose. Right. Well, and not be embarrassed to, to say, oh, yeah, on our balance sheet are these, you know, 600
0: properties that are. That are just a blight on the community. Well, and that scrutiny gets becomes greater when you're talking about multifamily. Mm-hmm. You start talking about oh. apartment buildings. Yeah. Then there's a lot more questions about where where's where's it located? Right. What's what's the tenant turnover going to be like? Right. Because that bank doesn't want to be stuck with an apartment building. No.
3: No, and we'll talk about that later too, because I over the Christmas holiday I was able to uh, speak to. Some friends and family who were heavily invested in a lower income part of the city, Um, and there were two, uh, I would say, 125 to 150 unit uh, apartment complexes on either side of a street in a very generally impoverished neighborhood, Um, and there was no lending whatsoever that went into these buildings. These were uh, it was private equity the entire time, private funding. Um, one complex was purchased for between four and five million. And after all the work was done, was anticipated to be at a value of about 15 million. The point is the banks were not involved
0: and right? didn't want to be. <laughs> no way.
3: They are not touching that stuff. Um, it, so anyway, it's, it's, it's a totally it's an interesting ballgame uh,
0: in that situation. Just to that's, question, that's higher level financing. It really is. Oh, when absolutely. you get into portfolio lending and lines of credit based upon, uh, co- you know, collateralized um, by other properties that you own, that's a higher level of financing. Yeah. You've got to you gotta have your head in the game, and your lenders got to trust you, and you have to have a trust relationship with them. I mean, it's you don't just walk in the bank and say, hey, I'd like to get a line of credit. I've got all these houses that I own. Yeah. It's, it's a relationship thing.
3: So when it comes to financing – one of the big questions that um, that investors are looking to uh, have answered for them is how do they keep from complicating their financing situation? Um, so, uh, to to say that more plainly, how do they? How can they be sure that every time they go in for to finance a property or several properties, um, how can they be sure that they're not going to trip up on some of the some of the snags that are there, like, are you aware of any um, situations that you've had where investors have, you know, s- started the financing application and we're, we're getting close to closing and then all of a sudden there's an issue with financing? What, what kind of
0: situations have you seen? Well, I will tell you that in my experience, if you're working with a local lender here, even though you may live out of state, if you're l- working with someone local, it's a lot Easier for me as the agent and uh, your closing attorney to work with a local lender because we know each other. Honestly, we're a small community; we really are like a big small town. Oh
3: yeah,
0: and so everybody knows each other. So working together and that that process is much smoother. We do work with out of state lenders, and if a if a buyer if an investor is living in California and has a relationship with they're California mortgage lender. That's great, too. We can work with them long distance. The, the Where we trip up is when the buyer is using a mortgage lender from the Internet. Mm. And people do it. And it doesn't work well because I know that if I'm getting a loan and the process starts, starts to get in the ditch, I can go to that lender's office and sit down in front of him and look him in the face. Mm -hmm. When you're getting a mortgage with somebody on the internet, there's less concern for them that you're going to show up at their door. And quite frankly, um, of those times that we've worked with someone by internet, I would say 60% of the time we have problems. We have delays. Closing gets pushed out. More documentation from the buyer. I mean, it, it just becomes a headache. So my preference is if you've got a, a local lender that you've worked with that you, that you trust, work with them. If you don't, then we can recommend local lenders here in Memphis that we know, that we trust, that we work with on a regular basis that will provide a much smoother process.
3: Right, because uh, once again, some, uh, bouncing back to something that Brett said, you know, we in, in our circle here, the people that we work to, you know, with in real estate in order to do our jobs, we all want to remain employed. I mean, it's as easy, Absolutely, it's as, yeah, easy as that. Yeah. And so um, I know very well some of the people that you've worked with in um, in financing and also in insurance, home inspection, home repair, contracting. So, you know, and these are people that we've worked with for our entire careers. Um, and we anticipate that we're going to work together with for a, a very long time. Well, Glenn, thanks for uh, sharing a little bit more with us about financing. You know, uh, I will say that it financing seems very daunting, I think, to the new uh, investor, um, say somebody who's very interested in getting involved in a community like Memphis—they just don't
0: know where to start. The first one is the hardest. Right. Once an investor has gone through the process the first time, and they learn what what it looks like, what it feels like, it, ju- it it's it's smooth after that. But yes, mm-hmm. the first one for a new investor, it's going to be the toughest. Yeah. But we we walk them through it. Hold their hand the whole way and make sure it's as smooth as it can possibly be. Yeah, you
3: know, having watched you all these years, to me, it seems very simple, you know. So, you know, to anybody that has questions about um, the financing uh, and uh, and and the ease uh, that, that we have in that, uh, that area, you know, just give us a call. Let us know. Thank you for listening to Behind the Curtain Podcast, your real-world guide to real estate investment and property management. Be sure to subscribe at BehindTheCurtainPodcast.com. And if you'd like to learn more about Enterprise Property Management's real estate services, please visit us on the web at epmrealestate.com.
0: This has been a Sound Ideas Group production for Enterprise Property Management, Inc.